Hello, agents, and welcome to Podcast 13. This week, we will be discussing episode 203, Beyond Our Control. We want to say a huge thank you to our new warehouse agents. Um, Our recent Patreon supporters include Hal, Kevin Edwards, and Megan or Megan Thompson, um, whichever way you prefer it pronounced, we thank you, we appreciate you, and we're so happy to have you on board. Yes, and for people who can't afford to be patrons themselves, that's okay, uh, but we would ask, and we haven't asked in a while, that you go and review us on iTunes and Apple Podcasts because it helps a lot of new people find our show. And if you weren't featured in the last mailbag episode, or if you were, write on into us and we will have another mailbag episode as soon as we have enough letters to do that. Yes, so we have gotten some really excellent ones. And like, if we didn't reply to you or if we haven't mentioned it yet, it is not because we didn't read it. We have read some awesome letters. We're doing a special episode of your guys' voices. So uh, send a couple more of those in so that we have enough content to make and release that. And... We will super, super look forward to it. Um, That brings me to some additional exciting, awesome things. By now, you have probably seen our huge Klexicon announcement. Um, So this is just a reminder and open invitation to join us there. We mentioned our excitement for Klexicon as a queer uh, queer women um, convention. But of course, there are many fans of Warehouse 13 who are not queer or who are not women. Um, if you are a dude, that's great. If you are trans, non-binary, non-gender conforming, um, you are still very much a part of the queer community and welcome there. Um, and even if you're the straightest bro, we know that people of all walks of life love Warehouse and we welcome you as our allies. You know, Jillian said, if you're listening to this show and you're supporting queer women and, you know, these objects that we love, like all of our, you know, straight listeners and sort of stereotypical male listeners are exceptional human beings who are so supportive and welcome to be our allies at Klexicon. So I've mentioned on the special um, announcement that this environment at Klexicon is one of the most welcoming and affirming things I can describe. Like you really can't know unless you've been there, how amazing it feels to walk into a room and like people always, um, you know, look at me and they assume that I'm straight. Many of my lovers were men. (laughs) Uh, But when I walk in there, no one assumes that and no one makes mistakes about my identity and my life. Like, Everyone knows that you can't assume about gender or orientation just by looking at a person. So, um, yeah, it's just a place where no matter how you look or act or present, like people are going to be kind of to you. Um, so even if you're just an ally who wants to come for like one day and see Jamie Murray, come hang out with me and Jill. If you're a guy and you're nervous, we will be your queer female friends to kind of take you through this space. Like, it's going to be awesome. We're so excited at even just the thought of seeing any of you there. It would just make the whole thing even more fun, and it's already going to be pretty fun. And if you're a queer woman, it's an amazing chance to see yourself become a majority in a world where we're usually a minority. And if you're an ally, I think that's still really beneficial for you to see, to be in a place where the norms aren't the norms anymore. I think that can be really good for everybody. 
Um, so share your excitement with the hashtag Jamie at Klexicon. It's hashtag J-A-I-M-E at Klexicon, C-L-E-X-A-C-O-N. Um, it's going to be worth building the hype about. Like, get excited now because by the time it comes, you will not be disappointed. Correct. And while you're there, just a reminder, you can also check out mine and Miranda's fan panel, which will be celebrating 10 years of queer representation on Warehouse 13 since the show has been on the air. And that's really cool, and we're excited to talk about it. And the more people who come, the more different voices and perspectives we can share. Also, I think Bella chirped. Hello, she Bella. She did. <laughs> Bella wants to come. She's a queer woman. <laughs> she um, is. <laughs> so please come to our panel um we are just two people who love this show and we want to include you and talk to you and like have you there to like share the joy with us so there's not like a right or wrong way to talk about this and even if you've like never never shared your secret fandom of warehouse 13 before like show up and share it with us here because um you know a lot of people are introverts on the internet but it's okay to to come out of your shell in a place where you're safe and welcome to do that. So we hope to see you there and we hope to talk to you about it online and get all your input. And our last bit of information on that is definitely keep up to date with us. Information's going to come out about the panel, about the scavenger hunt we're organizing and follow us on Instagram and Twitter and yeah, absolutely. And Klexicon themselves, their self, are not done announcing all of the guests who are coming. So um, if you have other things that you love, they might be represented there. Lots of queer women from lots of amazing queer shows will be there. Uh, speaking of which, this has nothing to do with our show, but I do know we do have a huge crossover audience with Person of Interest. And yes, both Root and Shaw will be there. So keep a lookout. Yes, that's awesome. <laughs> so I think that's the end of our housekeeping. Are you good, Jill? I'm good. So let's go into this week's summary. This week on Podcast 13, an artifact from the warehouse's history pops up close to home. Lena confronts the damage that McPherson did to her psyche, and Claudia works a case and expands her social circle. <laughs> somewhat badly but adorably better than she's done previously so improvement <laughs> someone her own age is a big improvement yes um and from there let's move on to our writer's appreciation it's been a while since we've had this segment and no we do not have a new writer but we do have a writer who i want to check in with because we learned a lot about this writer over the last season this episode was written by David Simpkins, who was the original showrunner selected by Sci-Fi of Warehouse 13. He did not stay showrunner because Jack Kenny stepped in, but they continued to work together and seemed to have a great working relationship. But we didn't really get a good sense of who he was outside of the politics of season one. The last episode that he wrote was co-written with several other writers and was Elements, which we had things to say about. And his last solo episode was 102, Resonance, which was a great episode, but was also Jack Kenny's first episode, and there was clearly still some network politics being worked out there. So for me, 
I think that this is David Simpkins best work so far. Yes, I think this is a really fun episode. And also what I learned from Jillian about some of the references in this episode makes it really more deep and thoughtful than I ever realized because it's also really funny in a good way like this whole projector thing we're gonna talk about like it it makes me smile but it also has real uh difficult history involved so we're gonna get into that today yes and we're gonna do I don't know if we have a segment name for this but I hope it's something that becomes recurring going forward as we rewatch this show because I noticed something amazing during the show, and rather than pointing it out one by one, I'm going to point it out at the beginning of the show, and then we can discuss this as we notice them appear. In the first five minutes, this show introduces three new characters who are people of color, all of whom have speaking lines, all of whom have names, all of whom hold positions of high authority, and one of whom even becomes a recurring love interest for a main character going forward. And that's really rare. Yeah, so as we go through, uh, most people are familiar with the Bechdel test, which we talked about. But there's going to be so many scenes. There's one I'm looking forward to where it's like three women of color all talking about something that is not a man or a love interest at all. And seeing that happen is, you know, it's something we want to point out and hope other people recognize too about the show. This show empowered a lot of people who have not historically been empowered by television. And that doesn't just mean queer women. It means all kinds of people. It's really almost not noticeable, but in a good way. Like, it's not difficult for writers to do this. Yeah. So we begin, however, with a previously on... H.G. Wells was debronzed. Lena was whammied by the Pearl of Wisdom. Claudia got Farnsworth's Farnsworth. Artie met the Regents, including Mr. Valda, who we know from every sci-fi TV show ever. H.G. Um, Wells cut the crystals that McPherson was wearing, which killed him, and we thought ended his involvement in the show, but he's still kind of echoing around. Um, and lastly, Lena called Mrs. Frederick about, quote, experiencing something strange, which we're going to get into today. Yes. One more thing happened in the previously ons, which is Pete and Micah met a lovely post office worker who we did an actor spotlight on last week. Yes. And her name is Brenda, correct? Yes. Played by Kyra Harper. Awesome. So that brings us to the beginning of the episode proper. In Wichita, 1944, there's like a filter. Yeah, there's a filter. It's not sepia, but um, it just has sort of this aged filmic quality to it, which I really like. And for people not in the United States who don't know where Wichita is, that's Kansas. It's a big flat area in the center of our country. <laughs> um, yeah, they're in Kansas. And Buck Menzel an African-American man from Warehouse 13, arrives at the army base. And he he is, like, not messing around. He's in a hurry. He's got the authority to shut down the Farnsworth demonstration. But it's too late. An explosion happens just as he arrives, and we see someone stumbling out from the building. Yes. Near a sign that says Project Gemini. 
We go from there to modern day at Lena's B&B, where we see a close-up of plans of what look to be a Farnsworth, like blueprint-style thingies. And then... We see Mrs. Frederick! And I swear, Miranda, we need some kind of music of excitement for whenever she appears in an episode, because I am so thrilled every time. I'm going to find some, and I'll put it in. Yay! Look forward to it in the edit. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So she is looking at the plan sprawled out on the counter with her trademark impassive expression, and Mrs. Frederick is alarmed that Lena says, oh yeah, Claudia was just looking to learn more about her new toy, and she gives Lena this flabbergasted look is the only way I can think to describe it and Lena immediately is like well not toy and just sort of distracts Mrs. Frederick and tells her that she's been edgy and unfocused and then turns around to see Valda another actor's spotlight appreciation we've had before played by Mark Shepard uh standing right behind her yes so Valda also reminds Lena that Lena's been having headaches and been complaining about them. And he says that McPherson might have left something behind inside Lena's head or psyche when he was controlling her, and he calls it an echo. And then he introduces our second person of color who is new to the show. This isn't even including Lena and Mrs. Frederick. Her name is Taka, and she's a regent, man. Yeah. And my only complaint about Taka is her Harry Potter glasses, which were a choice. And if those are are the woman's real glasses, I am super sorry. I just, I just thought they were kind of reminiscent of Harry Potter, but she's, yeah, she's going to play a role in this episode and she's pretty cool. Yes. And from there, we go to the post office in Unaville, where Pete and Micah are walking up to the door and a woman is leaving with a package. Pete offers to help her, and she just totally ignores him. Like, not even a no thank you. Like, he's like, oh, let me help you. And she just walks by, like, walks by him, almost shoving into him, but not quite. Just, like, not acknowledging his existence at all. And Pete is so annoyed and frustrated because all he wants to do is be liked by people. That's all he wants. Yeah, and I noted as well, this isn't just anyone. This is an old lady with a lot of packages. Like, she's got a stack of packages. And I just picture her being Pete's ideal audience. Like, sweet old ladies love him. He's a handsome young man who's polite. And he's like, why does this lady hate me? Like, it doesn't make any sense from his experience in the world. Um, And just as they're finally going in, Brenda comes out of the post office and she seems upset. She says it's closed due to government setbacks. And Pete is immediately alarmed because he was finally expecting his stuff, um, which Micah got her stuff last time. Yes. And she says that if he wants to get his stuff, he now has to go 90 miles away to a town called Featherhead, which A is fictional And B makes me go, hmm. Because it seems appropriative of indigenous people of South Dakota? Yeah. um, I love David Simpkins. I'm just wondering why he had to fictionalize a town with this particular name. 
So it's just something as like an intersectional podcast I feel like we had to point out. It doesn't make me hate David Simpkins. It just makes me have a question mark about why that happened. Um, the real takeaway is that the stuff he has to get is now 90 miles away. And he is so upset. And he, we don't really see him get rankled that often. He, mm-hmm. he really tries to stay level-headed and keep other people happy, which I think is kind of I mean it's a good way to be I know you and I are both that way but I also know that since we're both that way the cost is that it eventually builds up and you break a little (laughs) oh Um, yeah so he's trying he's getting a bit upset and venting at Brenda the post office worker who turns it right back around on him and is like well I'm more upset because I am in forced retirement and Micah is just sit, literally sitting in the t- back, sipping some tea, um, and watching Pete get yelled at. But in the conversation, we basically learned that the post office has been closed for good. So he's not getting his package today from there or any day. Yeah, she sort of suggests that it's Pete's fault in her uh, insults, and we're going to find out why very shortly. But he's just so baffled. He doesn't understand why literally this whole town not only hates him, but hates him without, like, any kind of negative first impression. (laughs) Like, what is that? Uh, sorry. Cut to Claudia, who says she's pimping out her Farnsworth, and Artie comes in mortified. He's like, you're tampering with perfection. Like, what are you doing? Yes, Jill. I want to say exactly what Claudia says here because it makes me so happy. She is so ahead of her time. I think at this point iPhones existed, but they didn't have all the things you wanted them to have, even not even close. And she goes, well, these things need color, GPS, texting, email. Claudia, that's an iPhone. Yeah. At, at the time she was saying that and visualizing it, We were like, well, that'll never happen. Like, they've already combined your MP3 player and your phone. That's plenty. (laughs) Well, and at the time that I was watching this episode, I had, like, the equivalent of a modified sidekick. I had one of those phones that, like, had the pull-down keyboard so you could text better. And, like... Me too. (laughs) There was, like, a prototype of web browser that didn't work and, like, never loaded. Like... That's where we were at back then, and she is seeing the future. And I just wrote that Artie sputters. He's, like, (laughs) not able to form real words. He does that growling thing that she makes fun of him for, and she takes the hint, backs off a little bit, and says, well, can I at least give it a better ringtone? And Artie pretends to be okay with it, and she's like, oh my gosh, really? And then he goes, um, of course not! And may I note... That in this scene, Claudia is wearing an amazing, like, fitted blazer, like, cropped blazer. And, Jillian, it's purple because we are still being reminded that she is not, in fact, a bad guy. Even though she's messing with warehouse technology. (laughs) Which, when she gets in trouble for that, she will be wearing a jacket over her purple blazer. I'm just saying. Excellent. I love that this thing I noticed in episode one just was true. It's like... I feel like I get mini fireworks around my head every time. Um, so Artie tells Claudia to either give the Farnsworth back or learn to live with it. She chooses the latter and then it sparks and Artie pulls an I told you so kind of face 
and then Claudia gulps, which takes us to a sign that says Dr. Hernandez Veterinary Hospital in Unaville, which brings us to the third person of color with a name and an authoritative job. Like, she's in charge of the vet. She is Dr. Hernandez. She mm-hmm. is a Latina, Latinx woman of color, and that's so awesome. It makes me so happy because two out of the three people of color who are introduced this episode are women. Like, this is getting it right on so many levels, and that makes me so happy. Yes. And so we get sort of a a pan across of this, um, you know, this vet's office, and an attractive woman inside is leaning forward, and I, I said to check out Pete? I mean, we don't know. She could be checking out Micah. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, that's what I thought was happening. There was a good view of them walking away that someone so inclined would like to watch. Yeah, yeah. So she's she's looking out the window and she bumps her head, which is also, I think, why we get the suggestion that she's kind of like enamored with someone that she sees. And right after she bumps her head, she sees two men in army fatigues that are walking past with their guns out. Um, and there's these like blue lightning zaps, which alert us to something artifacty. And she looks confused about this, um, but that's the end. Yeah. And as that's happening, Pete is complaining that he can't get through to anyone in Featherhead because they're such a small town. They have an all-purpose county phone line. And Micah's kind of done making fun of him for now and is trying to help calm him down. And um, she says, let's go for a drive, shall we? But as that's all happening... A weird sound prompts Pete to check his Farnsworth, and he says, and this thing's on the fritz, too, which we've all had that experience where everything seems to be going wrong, and then something kind of minor happens, and you're like, and another thing! And you just start to feel terrible about the whole day. But that's worth noting, because we have had this conversation before in the episode in the prison. The Farnsworth shouldn't be able to be on the fritz. That shouldn't be able to happen, and I think that if Pete was less agitated and Micah was less focused on trying to cheer him up, they would have noticed that that was a bad sign in itself. So Dr. Hernandez had seen these soldier guys. We, as an audience, follow them with a somewhat like wiggly image. So it's like, what are we seeing? Why are we seeing it? And we follow to see the two soldiers talking about their mission, which seems really scary and really dramatic. And then we cut to the warehouse. Yes, where Artie gets an alert that says SOS and Claudia comes running in screaming, it wasn't me, it wasn't me. Yes, and you know what I love about that is that um, it's Morse code And we see the digital banner along the wall that says SOS in the red letters, but we also hear the, you know, the Morse code being tapped out. So it also reminds me of that prison episode where Claudia has to, she uses Morse code to tap out SOS. Like she recognizes the SOS signal and Artie just ominously says, there's something wrong in town. So I got a commercial here on Amazon. So was that the same on your end? Yeah, weirdly, that was the first commercial break. We'll get to that later at the end of this coming act. But for now, we head into 
Act Two, where we are outside an unavailable barber shop, where Micah and Pete meet with Artie and Claudia, and Micah's like, I don't know. Artie just said to meet us here. It's an emergency. And Pete says, maybe his eyebrows are finally eating his face. <laughs> I laughed out loud. Me too. And I just am like, who wrote that line? Because it's perfect. It's so Pete. That's exactly what Pete would say. And it just delights me. And if you check out um, our show notes from season one, I have posted an old picture of Saul Rubinick and his eyebrows they did eat his face. The eyebrows you see in Warehouse 13 are somehow a tamed down version of his former eyebrows. Um, and at that point, Artie arrives with Claudia. He pulls up is too kind a word for <clears throat> what he is doing when he arrives. And he screeches up. He screeches up and Claudia is screaming at him, you're a menace. And Artie goes in a good way and she just gives him a face like, no. And he goes to meet Pete and Micah, and Pete immediately says, my Farnsworth is making weird noises. And he, <laughs> Artie just turns to Claudia and goes, see what you did? Then we see Artie using a mysterious glowy device to scan the barbershop pole. And Artie tells everyone it's an alarm system that indicates that an artifact is in town. And if the glowy stick thing glows purple then an artifact is in town, which it did. Which is interesting, because it's, like, indicating they're a danger, but it's like, we're the warehouse, we got it, so we're still purple. Yeah, that's what I was thinking, is that it's, like, a warehouse artifact is in the town where the artifact resides. Like, it's at home. It's, like, not out in the world, but it is in the world. Um, so yeah. that was really, really interesting to me. Yes. Artie then goes on to explain that towns that host warehouses have certain protections which just kept it real vague but somehow made it make more sense that that pole glowed and Artie thinks this could be an artifact that McPherson placed there to distract them from more pressing pursuits just like basically what they did with Micah's parents and Pete and Micah and Claudia finally learn why everyone in the town hates them. So everyone thinks it's a giant IRS warehouse that houses old tax returns and that the warehouse agents are all tax collectors. Micah's just like, no wonder they hate us. And Pete says, I hate us. Like, <laughs> no one wants their, yeah, no one, especially in the U.S. where we're, like, so stingy about our money. We're like, oh, you're going to collect a tiny bit of my money? How dare you? But my dad is an accountant. Y'all, they do math for you. Be nice to them. <laughs> um, then Artie tells them to go interview certain people and takes out a big expanding file and starts yeah. handing them documents. And Micah goes, oh my gosh, you even have their tax returns. And he just goes, sure, like that's a big stretch. And I actually laughed out loud. That was amazing. I think that was like, it's it's a cover, but it is like full commitment to the cover and then we get more fun information Artie then says he's going to run back to the warehouse and run what's called a salinger scan and pete says salinger like the author and claudia says rtfm dude and it takes a minute and then pete realizes it means 
oh yeah, read the fucking manual. And then he appreciates the wordplay. And then Claudia and Micah high five and are adorable. I loved the high five so much. I think even if you like, if you watch it again and slow it down, like the way they high five is so in character, like it is perfect. And it also goes to just, you know, as we develop Micah and think about her as a character and her potential love interest and all of that in this season, it's like she is this organized photographic memory comes in later. She loves to read, comes in later. Like she is this type A person. And when Claudia and her have a relationship where they bond over those things, it's beautiful. It's so amazing. It makes me so happy. I would go so far as to say that this scene is a perfect scene in the show. Like if I could pick a scene and be like, watch the show, I would show this whole scene because everyone is perfectly themselves. You get the perfect feel of what the dynamic between everyone is. And you also get Micah at her best when she's not only learning and asking questions, but is prepared to tackle anything head on and then has Claudia, this other woman here with her. Everything about it is aces. I love it. Yes. So after this scene, we go to the B&B where Lena and Taka are examining the Pearl of Wisdom. And Mrs. Frederick is concerned about this. She thinks that re-employing the artifact is a bad idea. Um, We know that the artifacts have side effects and that this was really damaging to Lena. But Valda says that the time is too important. They have to figure it out as quickly as possible. Mrs. Frederick, still knowing that, doesn't want to risk Lena's life. And we see this moment of intimacy like between them where Lena genuinely means something to Mrs. Frederick. And that's really impactful because Lena then says, no, I want to do it. Which I think is so important to give this woman her agency. Like, it's good to see so many people of import care about Lena. I always think that everyone should care more about Lena all the time. Personally, that's just where I'm at. But it's also equally important that she's not a pawn. She ultimately does make her own decisions. She's the one who called Mrs. Frederick there. She's the one who's deciding to do this. This brings us to the veterinary clinic where Pete and Micah are interviewing Dr. Hernandez. And I would like to take this opportunity to do an actor's spotlight. Light, light, light. So this was really, really fun. This actor is Paula Garces. Um, there's an accent on the E, so I did my best. She was born in Colombia. She is a Latina woman. She moved to Harlem, New York City at the age of seven. And that's where she began her acting career. Thanks to a family friend, she began appearing in commercials and such things. But it was later in her adult life when she began um, starring in films and television. And here is an amazing crossover where her first major film was in 2002 called Clockstoppers. And if you are familiar, I don't know if you are, this is a sci-fi film directed by Jonathan Frakes. Yes, that's from Star Trek The Next Generation, uh, Riker, a.k.a. number one. And the concept of that movie is that there's this teenage boy, and this boy discovers that 
this old watch that he found can speed up his movements so that everyone else seems to be standing still and it's sort of like a time travel device. So I love this because going back to Paula Garces, uh, that sounds artifacty and it sounds like the Imperceptor vest. Ha! Like such the perfect thing. And I know like obviously they're going to hire the best actor for the role and there's all of these factors that tie in. So yeah, um, so after she got her start in Clockstoppers, you may have also seen her in Law & Order SVU. She was in CSI Miami. She was in several uh, Harold and Kumar movies. Um, she was in The Shield, a TV series called Defying Gravity. One episode of Elementary, All My Children. She was in Devious Maids, where she also played a character whose last name was Hernandez, Flora Hernandez. And um, more recently, she was in a TV series called On My Block and a series called Major Crimes. And we love her. She's great. That was a great job, Miranda. Thank you. Thanks. Uh, so now back in the show, we are in the vet's office with Dr. Hernandez. Pete and Micah are talking to her, and that's when they learn that she saw Marines, specifically out-of-date Marines, that have a wolf's head patch on their uniforms. Dr. Hernandez says she knows they were Marines because her grandpa was one, and Pete does what he does, which is try <laughs> to flirt, and... <laughs> it doesn't go well she's not impressed she says well her grandpa was quote an evil who emotionally tortured his children which i mean that's i'm sorry for her but also don't be mean to pete about it yeah i mean i i do agree don't hit on women while they're at work yeah so that's where i'm coming from personally i also noted if you didn't see there's a big tub of Twizzlers on her table. I saw that too. <laughs> so product placement, hello. Um, not for the dogs, obviously, but I could I could go for a big tub of Twizzlers being placed <laughs> uh, on on the table reception. Twizzlers sponsor us, thanks. Yes, uh, good passive product placement, guys. Yeah. Um. So Dr. Hernandez asks why on earth this is related to her taxes and pete and micah flub up this excuse so badly i don't think they even finish what they're trying to say but they i don't i do want to note that this is a really funny spin on what does this have to do with the secret service because it's like if you're with the secret service you can kind of be like it's a matter of national security ma'am but if you're just an irs agent what can you say like what they don't even know what authority they have they're not law enforcement officers well and i think what's also so huge is like they don't know anything about taxes because <laughs> as you said jill like taxes in america are so difficult and complicated and like you know if you've seen a lot of movies about secret service agents like you could pretend to be a secret service agent but if you have never seen any real like insight into taxes you could not pretend you couldn't make it sound good so that yeah, cracks me up it they did so poorly and it was wonderful they just weren't prepared for this at all but micah changes the subject to mention just tell us some more about that flash of light you saw and dr hernandez says the town has long-standing power problems and then gets really angry with both of them <laughs> as if it's their fault 
that the post office closed, which I get, like, yeah, it would be bad if a town prioritized housing old tax returns over basic services, like a post office. But even if that were the case, it's <laughs> not their fault. But you know what I wrote just for you, Jillian, um, <laughs> was I said that Pete and Dr. Hernandez go Beatrice and Benedict real quick. And that's what we're getting from them. Like, they are arguing because they are attracted to each other. And because they're both, like, intelligent and, like, all of that. I got that that's what the show wanted us to think, but it didn't read to me at all. And the whole time I was like, does this not read to me because I'm Demi? Or, because <laughs> to me, it's like, why why would you want that? <laughs> why would you be like, you've been terrible to me and I don't care for you very much. Clearly we like each other. It's just my brain doesn't understand. <laughs> I see your point. I'm just <laughs> getting this from... Again, like, we saw her kind of physically checking someone out, That's and true. now we think it might be Pete. When he sees an attractive woman, he goes for it pretty much every time. <laughs> every time. Um, so it's not surprising to me. Um, but I love her. I'm going to just love her character for five straight minutes. Okay. She argues the IRS is useless and the government isn't helping people who need actual services and, like, as a sort of intersectional feminist point, she is correct. Our services are not adequate for the people in need in America. And like, she has an amazing point of view and perspective on the social issues, especially in a sort of small, sleepy South Dakota town. And this leads Pete, and I think we see why, to be like, we're out there saving your butt, which is funny because tax agents are obviously not. Micah <laughs> um, stops him from getting out of line uh, and he storms off. I think he's just flustered based on his physical attraction, as well as feeling frustrated that he can't say what they're really doing because he is really trying to save everybody's life all the time. And he says, seriously, Kelly. And she corrects him. And this is what I love. She says, it's Dr. Hernandez. And let me say, as a person with basically a PhD, when you're a woman, especially like women of color, which I am not, but women of color, people of color, women, queer women, um, women who, like me, don't appear authoritative in any way to the stereotypical expectations of a very like white male patriarchal society. Like even when we are doctors, like people don't call you doctor. People call you by your first name. People call you Miss. My students, when I'm a professor, they always call me Miss. My male students, like, sometimes, like, complain about having to call me professor. Like, it is a real world and a half that female doctors live in. And especially, like, I mean, I'm a literature professor, and that's nice and impressive. But she is, like, a medical professional. Like, she is a veterinary professional who went to so much schooling and so much work and she's a woman of color and she's not about to let him take that away from her my note though is that this must only be adding to pete's frustration because i mean i'm not a law enforcement officer but i've been to the doctor bear with me here okay and i wouldn't be surprised if some of the training was the same of break down barriers, create rapport, get yourselves on the same level so that they 
give you information. So I wouldn't be surprised if it was part of his training to get rid of titles. Yeah. And I had thought similarly about it because we know he, when he goes off on this, we're out there saving your butt. Like it's because he would lay down his life for a random stranger and he has offered and been in that situation multiple times on this show. He did die. He literally died for his cause. He sees these people of his town, like, not in a patronizing way, but he sees them as human people that he is trying to take care of. They're his responsibility. Yeah, exactly. So I don't have negative things about him making that mistake. I only have positive things about her willingness to assert herself and showing the audience that no matter who is calling themselves doctor, like, if they're... If their name badge says doctor, you call them doctor, you know? That's true, and that's so important. The argument with Dr. Hernandez um, escalates slightly, and she's like, I want to talk to your supervisor. And he starts spelling out Uncle Sam, and Micah diffuses the situation with, like, a weirdly cool wig woman move. Yeah! (laughs) She goes, yeah, he's patriotic and can spell. Isn't he cute? Like, she's, like, not gonna make a joke at his expense right now because she does want him to find someone she's made that known before like so that's the end of the scene and it brings us to it's a hardware and lumber store (laughs) claudia walks in in search of her special order and she goes looking for the shopkeeper and after a little looking she sees a cute boy uh down like kind of kneeling And they lock eyes, and this is more, I think, recognizable to us. Uh, Well, we've just seen two romantic meet-cutes, but this is more recognizable, and the chemistry between them, I think, is really good. Um, He's this young geek boy. He's got glasses. He's got 2000s hair, and a plaid shirt over another shirt. Like, he is very, and, like, the only word I have is cute, and I'm not being patronizing. Like, he is a young guy with, like, a boyish face, and, like, we see that where they look at each other, and she gets nervous, and she starts rattling off about her order, and he, like, starts nervously looking for the order. Like, I think that this meetup is very not forced, like, it's not like she dropped her papers and he picked them up, but it is a meet-cute, and it it is very effective. And it's a very Claudia meet-cute, too, because she, in her own way, is asserting authority. Like, I know all these things. I know what all of these things do. I am a capable woman, which is so much better than the, oh, I've just poured coffee all over myself, oh my goodness, which you often (laughs) see in meet-cutes, which doesn't tell you anything about the woman other than that she's clumsy and therefore approachable, question mark? Yes, and that's exactly, I think the therefore approachable question mark is a trope from the early 2000s where, like, clumsy women were seen as cute, but that's just aggravating because, like you said, that case would make her approachable because she is not self-assured and, like, really confident and capable, whereas Claudia is the opposite. Like, she is self-assured and capable and knowledgeable, and her ability to do things is what makes us love her. She's intriguing. She's approachable because you want to know more about her. Yeah, exactly. I think Todd is, like, we learned that's his name. Todd is, like, oh, like, his interest is piqued because she's smart and interesting. Yes, I got it. I got it this time. (laughs) 
so Claudia's about to walk off. And this is where we see, I think, Todd, because he's kind of interested in talking with her. He's like, so I just moved here. And she says, why on earth would you do that? <laughs> Which only makes us love her more. And that is very Claudia. Like, she has this sort of sarcasm about her. Um, and she goes walking in towards another room. And he stops her really quick and says it's the owner's apartment. And no one's like, like he's really private. No one's supposed to go up there. Yes. At that point, she turns around and Claudia hears a weird noise and a cowboy gallops toward her and she looks like a deer in the headlights, then jumps out of the way. Even saloon doors appear behind her. So now (laughs) it's not just people appearing, it's whatever's happening is changing the physical landscape of the town. And then he disappears and... Just then, Todd walks out to find Claudia on the ground and ask <laughs> if she's okay, which, oh my god, I would be so embarrassed. I would be yeah. mortified. Like, yeah, we just had this encounter, and I clearly bumbled enough that you can tell that I think you're cute, and now I appear not to be able to walk out of a door? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it's perfect. And that brings us to Pete and Micah, They're going door to door where we learn that they have seen 11 people so far. And not only have they had no luck, but many of the people are very unkind, especially to Pete. (laughs) And he's just, he can't get his mail. So he still doesn't have the stuff that makes him feel at home. And the end of the conversation we hear is something he's not, really able to laugh off anymore and it's weird because Micah is sort of taking the humorous side which that's how you can tell things are getting bad because he a door slams in his face and he says no the r is for revenue and that makes me so upset because we can fill in the completely inappropriate joke air quotes that was made there and that makes me upset and Pete's clearly upset by it um, and he tells the man behind the closed door that there's no need for language like that. And Micah immediately jumps in and she goes, strike 11. And Pete just is in a mood and he starts complaining about Dr. Hernandez. Micah just tries to get him to focus and starts leading him across the street. When there is another flash of light and a tumbleweed rolls by. Yes. So after the tumbleweed... Some cowboys pop up. No, some outlaws pop up. Um, well, they're they're all cowboys, but some are outlaw cowboys. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you. The outlaws are the, the bad ones, I think. <laughs> um, and they pop into the middle of the street, and Pete says, oh, that guy looks familiar. And they begin talking, and he says something like, oh, that's a good line. Like, he uses the phrase line... But there's no time for Micah or himself to dissect that because then they pull out their guns and they're starting to shoot. So trained law enforcement officers, Pete and Micah, throw themselves to the ground. And, you know, we're trying to figure out if this is an optical illusion um, or like an actual like appearance. And we see tires get blown out on a nearby car. Windows get shattered we're led to believe from that that this is a real like danger physically to their world but once it all like it disappears and they kind of step back up 
they look around and the tires and things seem to be fixed. Oh, I didn't even notice that. And from there, do 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 do. <laughs> Which this is super weird. Typically, an opening theme song comes either right after the initial scene of the show that grabs your interest and then it's like title this is the show welcome or comes at the first commercial break but for whatever reason the theme song is coming later this season and is coming at the end of act two which perplexes me i i don't have an answer for it i mean it was obviously very likely mandated by the network Mm -hmm. because of where they have to put their commercial breaks but that's just not something I've seen I mean I studied tv in film school at the time this was airing so I don't know if this was just a weird blip on sci-fi it may happen more now but I certainly haven't seen it it confused me too because I was like what has only seven minutes passed but like half of the episode has passed (laughs) from that strange but still lovely theme song we go into act three where we are back in the warehouse office claudia approaches Artie, micah and pete with research and they all look at her with kind of upset looks micah (laughs) is the least upset because she's got her girls back Artie and even Pete are giving her kind of a silent judgment, which is such a bummer. Like, I'd expect it from Artie, but I think that if Pete was mad at me, it would really hurt. Oh, yeah. So this is where I think Jillian will have a great commentary. Artie says that Claudia's futzing with the the Farnsworth is the source of their (laughs) problem. So, of course, I'm assuming this is a Yiddish funny thing. Yes, futz, I didn't, I literally didn't even notice (laughs) that he said it because it was just so second nature to me. Futzing is exactly what it sounds like. Messing with something? Yeah, it's like messing with something, but in a really non-productive way that's just more annoying, like. (laughs) Well, it's perfect, and uh, like Jillian said, Micah is the one who seems to have Claudia's point of view in mind, and she considers that either it isn't Claudia's fault or it could be, like, something related to the Farnsworths paired with something else, like an interaction. We keep thinking back to um, the prison episode, which I forget the title of, but that was obviously a sort of interaction issue And Micah has learned a lot about artifacts from those things, and she's taking notes. So when she begins explaining her theory, even Artie, who, like, wants to blame Claudia, like, perks up and he's like, you know, that seems possible. We can pursue that as a potential option. And this leads them to go and triangulate an area. Yes. Amending. I have a few notes about this scene. The first is that the reason Artie thinks that Claudia might be responsible is because the Farnsworths all start squawking Mm -hmm. before an event. So he knows she's been messing with them, and then they do a thing, and an artifacty thing happens. That's not great. You pointed out futzing for me. I noted something that I thought for sure you would cover. On Claudia's vest in this scene, she's got lots of pins on it. One of which is a Mind the Gap pin. (laughs) Jillian, 
I <laughs> I know the pins. I honestly, I watched it on my laptop and not my big TV. So I didn't see it. And I'm heartbroken because I'm going to literally rewatch it just for actually zooming in. Because you know how I love words on surfaces. I know. Words on surfaces, British things, words on Claudia's upper body. It's all good. <laughs> it's all good for you. Um, so... <laughs> Anyway, Claudia's adamant that anything she did with the Farnsworth couldn't have caused this because, quote, there's not enough power between all their Farnsworth to twitch a frog's leg. And I noted um, something about this exchange because one of the reasons you and I have this podcast is because we're smart people. We know how to talk about things in an intelligent way and we both work in fields where sometimes our age and appearance lead people to believe that's not the case. And I really feel for Claudia here because that's what's happening. Artie's experience in the warehouse makes us and the audience want to believe him, but let's take this moment to question our instinctive biases. He may be older, he may have experience with artifacts, but she is the unquestionable expert on actual technology. And her age and gender may lead viewers to want to dismiss her, but in watching it for this podcast, I find myself agreeing with her. She knows what she's talking about, and no one is even validating her statements. It's not because she says there's not enough power in these Farnsworths to do this that anyone starts going easy on her. It's because older, more experienced Micah says, well, it might be because of these things that she only learned secondhand from Claudia in the first place. I am so glad you said that because I think I just kind of watched the scene quickly. But you're right because Claudia knows for a fact that this can't be what everyone assumes it is. And they also like, they're also assuming that like, oh, well, she just doesn't want to take responsibility for it. But I think she would. I think if she thought she had done it, she would be like, yeah, here's how I think we have to fix it. But she's like, no. Yeah, she doesn't have a problem admitting her mistakes, which I think is even even more frustrating. Um, And in the vein of Claudia being more than willing to learn and correct herself on everything, this is also the scene where an exchange reveals to her that it's pronounced Univille, not Univille, <laughs> because of unincorporated territory. <laughs> and from there, they build on what Claudia and Micah have suggested to triangulate an area where the source of this kind of uh, interaction may be coming from. And Pete is worried that it's four square blocks, but four square blocks is actually something they can manage and investigate. So they're going to go to that area and try to find what's happening. And so from there, we cut to the bed and breakfast where Lena lays on a couch and Taka gives her a large ball of amber, um, which I just in my brain was like, that looks expensive. (laughs) It does. And we also can understand from the text, like, without a lot of explanation that this amber sphere is going to function as a sort of medium like a like a crystal ball um to see what's going on in lena's subconscious but an amber ball is actually more pertinent because and this is something that close readers of the show notes will have clocked 
Amber is very tied in with the history of the study of electromagnetism. And we talked about this with one of the founders of the study of electromagnetism, where they're trying to figure out what may have caused an artifact to act in a certain way. One of the things that was in the Words on Surfaces segment was someone's headstone amber. I can't remember the name off the top of my head, but I did put that in the show notes. And he, the reason it was amber, and we did talk about this in the show notes a bit, um, I can't remember if we got into it on the show, was because when he first studied the properties of electromagnetism, he studied them in relation to amber as, I think, a um, conduit of that energy. So this is very good continuity on a pseudoscientific level of the show, which I really enjoyed. On a Victorian science level, Jillian. So Jillian just did my job, and I will do Jillian's (laughs) job, which is to point out that although I would say it's a rather golden sphere, it does fit into our sort of orange warm tones as like indicators of danger theory. Yeah! Oh, you're so smart! We can trade (laughs) and be each other. (laughs) And that is where uh, we get the sort of um, beginning of this. Let's call it a mind journey. Mind journey, yeah. (laughs) Where uh, Taka places her hands on the amber, kind of over Lena's hands. And these are Jillian's words, not mine. Light from the amber engulfs the image. (laughs) Um, So yeah, and we do get Taka talking at this point. She warns Lena there will be pain, but that's less than before but there will still be a little pain because they do have to put the pearl of wisdom back into lena's ear okay um so they do that um back in unaville claudia meets up with p and micah on the sidewalk and claudia explains to micah about the owner's hidden upstairs apartment above the shop and micah suggests okay well if it's you know patrolled or whatever let's go around back And Pete tells Claudia to stay outside and keep an eye out. I actually really loved Claudia's face acting (laughs) at that moment. Because you can tell the first part of the sentence when he's like, Claudia, stay outside. She does the thing that I think you and I both do, which is, oh no, but I think people are mad at me, so I want to help and prove that I'm valuable. Mm -hmm. Um, And you can see all that on her face. And then he says, but keep an eye out. And then she just she nods and just goes and like takes a stance which is like oh I've been given a job I am trusted okay cool (laughs) (laughs) when Pete and Micah go to investigate we continue um following Todd and Claudia in the shop a tiger appears and so does a gladiator Todd has the best scream he really shrieks This scream brings Claudia running, and this is perfect. This goes back to the high five with Micah and Claudia earlier. She very quickly pulls out some awesome self-defense moves, and in just a few, and I mean, like, she's a, a very small woman, but in just a few moves, she busts Todd, knocks him out, and then it's, like, before she even realizes that it's him. Yeah, she's not trying to hurt him. She's just attacking what she thinks is a threat. But, oops. Oops. And she <laughs> goes, dude, dude. And she kneels by him. And it's so funny. I love the, the the way it worked out. And it just seemed perfectly believable that that was her reaction. 
Absolutely. And then she immediately regrets it <laughs> and apologizes to his unconscious form, <laughs> at which point she turns and spots the tiger and a gladiator. And she runs upstairs to the owner's apartment where she finds many TV screens showing many different things. Micah and Pete tell Claudia that the owner is a video pirate who is selling illegal satellite feeds to folks in town. Claudia's like, this is the artifact? Like, she's confused. Mm-hmm. She thinks they're a few steps ahead. And, <laughs> and Micah just goes, no, this is a felony. <laughs> I think it's perfect and very timely. So this brings Claudia to be like, oh, wait, yeah, we have to rush downstairs because there's a tiger. She doesn't say that, but, like, it's implied. They run down there. And now, I'm very sorry, cover your ears, Bella, there is a dead tiger, and they still see the gladiator. I was so sad. Me too. Um, And also, one of my favorite lady moments happens, (laughs) where Micah goes, Claudia, what did you do? And Claudia says, that thing you taught me, the arm thing, or maybe the leg thing, I don't know, it just happened. Which, like, we know that Micah has absorbed everything Claudia has taught her. But now we get information that Micah and Claudia have been having these regular things that they said they would start having in the last season, where they teach each other things and lift each other up and make each other more capable. And I just wrote heart eyes emoji because that is how I feel. Yeah, and that's exactly what I was thinking, too, back with the high five, is that the what's the word for this Jillian in writing it's like the untold backstory like I just call it off-screen storytelling yes that's the word when you're a writer you create so much work and so much background and information that never gets put into the text but you know it's there and these writers like we see all of the proof of these relationships and interactions and like the teaching and uplifting of one another that, like, we don't get a long exposition dump about, like, what they've been doing the past six months, but you see evidence of it, and it's, like, showing rather than telling. And like we've said before, like, this show resonates with everyone for a different reason, and, you know, so many queer people have, like, really strong um, resonances and stories with it, but also just, like, so many humans from any background tuned in and saw a family, They saw people who love each other and who all come from difficult backgrounds, like, creating some community of support. And it's beautiful. And I know it's just, like, this silly moment that's supposed to be funny, but it also, like, really hits us in the heart. I think it's amazing. Yes, and that is perfect to take us into what I'm about to talk about, which is... As the gladiator appears and starts speaking in a Scottish accent, first I w- just I do want to acknowledge this is a Braveheart reference. <laughs> the um, the Scottish accent, yeah, okay. I mean. Um, however, more importantly, Pete jokes by calling this gladiator Spartacus. We do not have. A specific episode expert this week. We had one booked and she is so welcome to come on anytime, but due to some medical issues, we're on our own this week. But that doesn't mean that we don't have things to say or analyze. So let's all settle in for a little bit of a spiel about the Hollywood Blacklist, the Hollywood 10, and Kirk Douglas, because it's a good story. Spartacus is 
an incredibly inaccurate historical movie <laughs> about the real person who we only know as Spartacus. It's important to know that's his gladiator name and therefore his slave name. We don't actually know Spartacus' real name. But he was a Thracian person taken into slavery and forced to be a gladiator. And he started a slave rebellion in early Rome. And here's where it gets complicated and intertwined with Jewish history. The House Un-Americans Activity Committee existed in the 40s and 50s to ostensibly investigate treason, but specifically led to persecution of anyone in any way affiliated with communism. And this disproportionately affected Jewish people because a lot of Jewish people had emigrated from Russia. And what's important to note here is that being a communist was not and has never been illegal in the United States. These people weren't planning to overthrow a government. They were members of a political party. The Hollywood Ten are ten people who were named... These were 10 writers and directors who were cited by the HUAC for, quote, contempt of Congress on November 24th, 1947. It was a thinly veiled attempt by Congress to say, tell us everyone you know who has participated in this activity or we will end your career. And they said, well, then I guess you'll be ending our career. And this list expanded far beyond those original 10 people. The blacklist started the day after these 10 people were named. So, November 25th, 1947. The MPAA, that's the Motion Picture Association of America, met at the Waldorf Astoria Hotel, and this is why they call it the Hollywood 10 and the creation of the blacklist. They released a statement called the Waldorf Statement, which named these 10 people who were subpoenaed, and instead of standing by the people who are creating their content, they issued a statement that included the following text. We will forthwith discharge or suspend without compensation those in our employment and we will not re-employ any of the ten until such time as he is acquitted or has purged himself of contempt and declares under oath he is not a communist. There's a person named Howard Fast who was on the Hollywood blacklist. He was a, a British Jewish person who came to America. And I mean, after the Hollywood 10, he was put on the Hollywood blacklist and imprisoned. And while imprisoned, he wrote a book called Spartacus, which was essentially about the oppression of Rome and what it did to its people and why people needed to resort to a slave revolt. Again, not super historically accurate, but not the point. And that's the other reason I wanted to bring it up this week. Because it can be really tempting to get mired down with facts and just say, well, this movie wasn't accurate, it's not important. But it was an accurate reflection of what was happening in the United States at the time. And importantly, spoiler alert, this movie ended with the bad guy, the bad Roman guy, Crassus, saying, I demand to know who Spartacus is. Someone better point him out to me. And everyone who stood with Spartacus stood up and said, I am Spartacus. 
I am Spartacus. They all refuse to name names. They all refuse to do exactly what the initial Hollywood 10 refused to do. They refused to sell each other out to get ahead themselves. And as a result, they were all crucified. What I'm going to be a doofus about and ask is, you mentioned that Pete makes the Spartacus reference, but is this a fictional movie and fictional actor that is being represented to kind of invoke Spartacus? Yes. I'm glad you asked that. It is a fictional movie. We don't know what movie, I mean, he says what movie it is at some point in like a long list, but it goes by quick. But I think the reference here is more specifically on Kirk Douglas. The reason we keep seeing this actor is related to the fact that this actor's movies are playing on essentially... I don't think they say Turner Classic Movies, but it's Turner Classic Movies. Um, Kirk Douglas definitely fits the bill. And I think that this actor, this fictional actor, is a direct allegory for Kirk Douglas, who has over 84 film credits to his name. Kirk Douglas sounds like a vaguely Irish Scots name. It's actually the name Isur Danielovich, a Jewish man who rose to fame with the name Kirk Douglas in the United States as a heartthrob, seeming very secular, seeming very non-Jewish, but he grew up in a Yiddish-speaking household. His family was from the Russian Empire in modern-day Belarus. What, what? That's where my relatives are from, too. And he was not going to stand for this either. And this movie ended with that same scene, an adaptation of a Jewish author's work to tell a story about oppression that ended with the people in power having a needless witch hunt against a group of people who only ever wanted their freedom. And they all got crucified for it. They lost their lives, they lost their livelihoods, their families fell into chaos. And it reflected the whole American experience back onto itself and led to the end of the Hollywood blacklist. So this is a very important very beautiful movie that although not whatever historically accurate was historically accurate to the time it was written in and it really forced america to take a long hard look at itself so this was a very thoughtful reference in warehouse 13 that i have a lot of love for and that i think we really needed to have a deep dive on i love the deep dive i appreciate it so much So this brings us back to Pete and the gladiator, the sort of Spartacus reference gladiator. But just as he goes to block the way of the gladiator, Amazon gave me a commercial. We did talk about good commercial breaks and bad commercial breaks last season. And what did we say about this kind of commercial break? Oh, no, the main character is in trouble. Whatever will happen. Either something will mysteriously fix the situation when we get back from commercial break, or the main character dies, <laughs> which won't happen, so you know it's option A. Yeah. And that's exactly what happened. But my second reaction was, oh, I like this. <laughs> because as a film studies person, I realized that this was a meta-commentary on that. Because this whole episode is a reference to watching movie marathons and finding opportune moments to cut and go to commercial because you're watching it on TV. So this is like, oh yeah, if this was a, you know, the kind of thing you were watching, this is where that cut would be. So I, I 
turned around on it very quickly when I realized what was happening because oh, David it. Simpkins, right? Because David Simpkins was the original showrunner and you don't get to be a showrunner without knowing the basics of how to make a good, yeah. you know, commercial break. So, And we get more meta commentary on commercials later. This is perfect. Um, the gladiator throws his shield, which hits Pete in the face. Pete continues to try to protect Claudia and Micah. He wants them to run away, um, and he kind of tries to block um, the gladiator. But just in time, before the gladiator hits him with a pitchfork, question mark? Was that a pitchfork? I called it a trident? I mean, it literally looked like a trident. Yeah. Okay, it does look like a trident more. Um, That's a little more timely. It seems more Roman, too. Yeah. So the image disappears just as he's about to get Pete, and um, Pete's okay, but we did see him get hit on the head, and he kind of stumbles and passes out. So that takes us back to the B&B, where Mrs. Frederick has had enough, and she tells that to Mr. Valda, and says, you're chasing shadows. But Valda counters that something is throwing those shadows, and Mrs. Frederick She takes over, despite Valda's protestations, and says Taka is out of her depth. But she isn't. She being Mrs. Frederick. If it was Mr. Valda interrupting Taka, I would have had a big problem. But instead, you have three women of color, all of whom have names and speak and positions of authority, solving their own problems while over real while overruling the white guy in the corner. Yes, that's exactly. Which I kind of dig. It's exactly <laughs> I think intentional that these women are working together. They're highlighting each other's skills and abilities and like Mr. Valda is there in a bureaucratic capacity, but like they are doing the fixing and it's cool. And Lena speaks with James McPherson's voice. Yeah, we get the end of that scene with Lena repeating these ominous words. And it brings us back to the hardware store, where luckily Todd doesn't remember what happened. So Claudia quickly informs him that he fell off the ladder, banged his head. Um, Hey, you dropped your glasses. Like, they have this amazing interaction, which culminates in Todd being like, He puts on his glasses and kind of looks at her and he's like, you really work for the IRS? And Claudia straight up says the exact truth. Like, no, I work for a secret government organization that tracks down dangerous artifacts. And like, it's like, oh, like he's like, oh, she's sarcastic. Duh, I'm a doofus. But like, it's the actual literal truth. It's so good. Yes, and he just responds, you're going to audit me, aren't you? And she goes, May- maybe. But, but because, first of all, she's going to audit him in her own way. She is going to search everything she can possibly find on him. We know this about her. That is what she would do. Second of all, this is the great flip side of being a person who is incredibly capable, but no one believes is incredibly capable. You can just say stuff, and it's... If you know no one's going to take you seriously, you can just kind of say whatever you want because no one's really listening anyway. It's almost like I can't believe she did it because, like, she blew their cover, but she didn't because no one's going to believe it. And, like, only Claudia would do this, you know? Yeah. That takes us to the vet clinic where Dr. Hernandez is patching up Pete's forehead. (laughs) He's being a baby. Micah once... Once uh, Dr. Hernandez leaves the room, 
is like, wow, what's up with you two? Um, but Pete is just like, man, hater. Uh, and they, they go back to their work. So this is interesting to me as well. Like, again, we have gotten Dr. Hernandez as like a strong, capable woman who claims her PhD and like takes herself like seriously and confidently. Um, so I feel like the man hater thing is Pete just being hurt and bitter that like she didn't respond to his flirtations yeah, it's not my favorite look it's on him. It's not mine either. Um, but I don't think, like, it happens. And you can't hold that kind of thing against someone forever. It's so noticeable to us because it's so outside his character. We don't have this sense, like, oh, this is how he really thinks internally all the time. It's just, like, you just needed to blame someone, and she doesn't like you anyway, so you might as well lash out at her. Yeah, and I, I think that's exactly it. And I appreciate and enjoy that this dynamic gets turned around eventually. Like, slight, slight oh, yeah. spoiler, she is an interest for Pete, and it moves forward as an interest for Pete. So... They go on theorizing about what might be happening. And Pete makes this great village people joke because he <laughs> saw like, oh, there was a cowboy. Oh, there were the military guys. Oh, they're like, I can't name all the village people. I'm sorry. But like, it seemed like every once in a while, Pete has a theory that sounds crazy. But you never know in the warehouse it could be. Yeah, which they get at in actually 105 Elements, which is just throw out whatever you're thinking because who knows? You just don't. Yeah. Um, so the next thing that's amazing is Micah asks Pete if he remembers a transmitter course. I'm assuming that they would have taken at like Secret Service Academy or some sort of joint training that they both had. Huge surprise, Pete doesn't. Um, <laughs> Pete was probably playing, uh, you know, games in the back of the classroom as he does. Um, but Micah remembers it quite well. And calling back also to the prison episode, like Micah has a good working knowledge of sort of like basic technology and sending and receiving signals. And she's like, hey, maybe the Farnsworths are reacting to a signal rather than like creating something on their own. Um, and this brings them to the excellent plan that if the Farnsworths can react to a signal, maybe they can like kind of be flipped around to locate a device or sort of like foresee a signal. And I think that all of the, the power in this episode to kind of deduce what's happening and then make an action to correct that issue it's all being given to women. It's Claudia and Micah figuring this out. It's Mrs. Frederick and Taka figuring this out. It's like, boom, boom, boom. Empower, empower, empower. It's so good. And they run out and do another thing that they need to rectify, which is recognize Claudia as the higher authority because she is. But <laughs> she's also been having a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. And so when they run out to her very purposefully, she just says, oh, God, what did I do now? <laughs> Poor Claudia. <laughs> Poor Claudia. Um, and that takes us to the warehouse stacks where we learn there's a Farnsworth aisle, a whole aisle, and Claudia is very impressed as she walks through it with Artie, and Artie tells her that she's not to touch anything, and the aisle is off limits to her, 
but he will get whatever she says <laughs> so she good. gets. It's so good. And he's wearing gloves. It's really cute. And she needs to turn the Farnsworths into signal locators. And she rushes toward another aisleite. I don't have excellent hearing, but I think he said that side of the owl. <laughs> wow. wow. <laughs> I think Artie said that side of the aisle is for nuclear fusion, and some items on that side are still kicking. Claudia backs away very quickly, as I would too, because nuclear is a big, scary word, and also brings us back to the theme of the 50s that we discussed earlier. Um... She backs away, and Artie seems impressed with himself for noticing and catching her, and he goes, see what happens when you include the old guy. And he does, like, an adorable, dorky dance, and it's it's clear that he's not angry with her anymore, but it's also, it's the equivalent of Miss Frederick laughing. It's like you don't, it's something that doesn't happen. Claudia goes, are you having a stroke? And Artie immediately, like, hardens again. And he's like, fine, touch it. Touch it all. (laughs) And we go to Pete and Micah looking for directions. And this is helpful, too, because we have mentioned multiple times that Pete is a Marine because we know that, and it's kind of a basic element of his character. But Micah doesn't really know that much about it if she has even heard about it at all. So she, when they're talking about the directions, is like, how long were you a Marine? And of course, as anyone with military family members would know, Pete says, you are always a Marine. Um, But he never wore a patch. And in fact, Marines don't wear patches. So this kind of leads them towards the direction that maybe they're not real soldiers. But we don't get the conclusion yet because we are going back to the fact that Claudia did, in fact, look down the Farnsworth aisle. Um, (laughs) Artie did, like, actually... I mean, I think he trusts that she's not going to keep messing around, um, but she did look at stuff. And she informs him that there's something wacky going on. Artifact 186A was not present, and there's a 186B, but the other half was missing. So she tells this to Artie, who is very concerned. Claudia jokes, it must have been on the loading dock for 70 years. (laughs) But Artie's running out, like, with an extreme look of concern, like, the second she says that. And she goes, do we have a loading dock? (laughs) (laughs) And Artie also informs us, because I think this is great writing, if it was never received, remember that Salinger inventory search thing would have informed him if an artifact was missing from the warehouse. But because it was never home, it's not not home it's not lost because it was never there so i think that was a really good detail yes and from there we get a close-up shot of a red stuffed dog that looked so much like hamilton i kissed his little head when i saw it and then the shot expands to show that we are in the unavail vet where dr hernandez confirms that the wolf patch she saw was spitting fire Hmm. And immediately, Pete tells Dr. Hernandez to stay inside and stay safe. And he calls her Kelly here, clearly with a more reassuring tone. But she corrects him again. Um, And he just can't. He just can't. So he goes off with Micah. And he informs her that this is from a movie called Operation Dragon Wolf. Which 
I didn't correlate to a specific movie. I'm sure there is one that everyone is screaming, like, how can you not see this as a reference to blah? I know I'm more of a TV person than a movie person. I'm sorry. But my big takeaway was Operation Dragon Wolf. Right? That's a title of something I can absolutely see 10-year-old Pete watching. <laughs> That's pretty amazing, yeah. Um. So then Pete reveals what he recognized the cowboy actor and the Spartacus actor. He now knows the Marine actor, even though he didn't see that one in person. They're all movies starring a person named Raymond St. James, who is our Kirk Douglas allegory. Yes. And if I could chime in, because I did a, a Google um, to see, because like I said, I didn't know if this was a real person. There is not a Raymond St. James, but Google asked me, did you mean Raymond St. Jacques? Uh, I don't know how to pronounce that, but like the French uh, Jacques. And it said, according to Wikipedia, that Raymond St. Jacques he was an African-American director, actor, and producer, and he was the first African-American to appear in a Western series. So I don't know if this is an accident, and it's just totally Google making me create this connection, but maybe the name was an homage because we had a Western series, and we're talking about underrepresented, underserved minorities in film, and like you said, Jillian, minorities were treated awfully by early film and an African-American in a Western is huge for this old time period. Yeah. Oh, I love this show. Yes. <laughs> um, so from there, I don't have anything to add. I just love your brain. Um, from there, we go to the warehouse where Artie looks up 1944 and discovers Project Gemini and how it is related to a transmutational camera tool. And from there we go to the stacks, where Artie searches the Farnsworth Isle and realizes that item 186 is this transmutational camera tool thing, where he realizes the 3D camera is in stock, not its corresponding projector, and he calls it lost in the mail. And I do want to say... This may seem like a stretch, and obviously the fact that it can project into real life and actually have a physical mass that affects you is obviously impossible, but 3D technology existed so much earlier than our modern day. It existed almost as soon as TV existed, if not a little before, because as soon as people were able to have televisual devices in their homes the movie industry got very freaked out and was like, what can we do to make sure our experience is distinct and different from the experience you would have in your living room? And you had a lot of experimental film things happening. You had um, early versions of 4D where, like, smells <laughs> actual physical experiences would happen you'd have extremely huge like cinemascope style screens that would surround you and you would have early versions of 3d all were designed to motivate you to get out of your house drive to a theater and pay for a movie ticket instead of settling for whatever it was that you could be watching at home the camera and the projector being paired like we talked about with um the edgar Allan poe episode it's also Da, 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 Project Gemini. Um, Gemini, the astrological sign, are the twins. 
And I think that the Warehouse 13 writers are always very thoughtful about the names that they give to things, even just the project that is could be a throwaway name. They give it an interesting name. And we do have an amazing email that we're sitting on, a listener who wrote to us about the Zodiac elements in Warehouse 13 Season 2, like being brought in constantly throughout the season and we are really intrigued by this and will continue to share it in more depth and also we're hoping to have a listener write in special where we give you all of each other's insights because they're so good so Artie goes into the aisle to pursue whether or not this artifact is truly lost and sure enough he rips open the box and confirms to us at home that it was lost in the mail. So I think Jillian, you did mention that it was lost, but like he goes at it with a crowbar and like tears, you know, tears out the, the item and proves that it's definitely not there. So continuity, Claudia comes rushing up um, to Pete and Micah and she is not in Artie's car, but in her Camino, which, if you recall, Artie said, you can't drive my car because you can't drive stick. So she's driving a different car. And she has equipped the cutest little satellite dish to her Farnsworth. Yes, that's what I was trying to read. She explains that she has figured out how to, how to rig the Farnsworths to be locators, and she says that if the source is in one direction, the problem is going to hit in the other direction, which makes sense because you have to project it to somewhere. And Pete immediately realized that based on their readings, while Claudia and Micah are heading toward the source, he realizes the problem is going to occur at the vet where Dr. Hernandez is, and he races toward her, and Claudia and Micah follow. Yes, so as soon as Pete realizes the danger is in Kelly's direction... Like we said, he cares about her because that's his job. He protects people. He goes knocking on her window and she's just like, she's mad at him. He's mad at her. She's like, you told me to lock the doors. You told me not to, you know, whatever. And they argue and she finally lets him in just in time for the trouble to start. So this seems to be a scene from like a noir film. Yeah, black and white noir. Yeah, and... There's some shooting, and Pete is like, Claudia, get Kelly out of here. Which also, like, it, it's not just Pete protecting the innocent civilian, but he's protecting Claudia. Because, remember, she's not an agent. And having the Farnsworth doesn't mean that she's supposed to put her life in danger. Like, she is the technological genius of the team, but she's a very young person who, like, it's not that she can't take care of herself, but, like... This isn't her training. Yeah, she didn't sign up uh, for physical threats of guns and violence. So they get out of there. And while the scene unfolds, Pete's like, don't worry, I know how it ends. And he's kind of like reciting the lines excitedly. Pete and Micah are not in immediate danger now that this scene is coming to a close. But what Pete turns to Micah and reveals is that these films are going in chronological order of, like, the actor's, you know, oeuvre, I guess. So this leads them to realize that the next film is going to be Dr. Doomsday, um, which Pete, like 10-year-old uh, child in his heart, 
uh, gets excited for says, oh, it's, like, really exciting. There's this mad scientist. He, like, blows up the whole town. And Micah's like, well, okay, that might be less fun if we all, you know, die. Um, <laughs> and her delivery on this, like, ever since we did our interview with Eddie and he talked about, like, how hard Joanne uh, kind of thought and prepared and worked for these lines, like, is perfect the way she confronts yeah. Pete with, like, I know you love it, but you do realize that, like, we're all going to die if this happens. And it's such, like, a moment of growth for her from how she would have treated that line way earlier on in their friendship. Like, before she would have been kind of snappy and been like, Pete, focus. But now she appreciates that he always sees the good in things, and I think that's beautiful. Yeah, and she appreciates that, like, she didn't recognize these movies. Like, we've said before... Pete doesn't have the quote-unquote like traditional education but knowing comic books and classic films and such and such those are huge fonts of knowledge is what we call them in academia where like you have this incredible background in something that like maybe more traditionally trained people don't have and so she recognizes his value not just as like the beef but as an intellectual partner. Yeah, just because he's intellectual about pop culture knowledge doesn't mean he doesn't know stuff. <laughs> Points <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah, and also, this takes us out to an act break where we go out on a classic Barnsworth, which I like because it takes us back to, like, the format of the show that, like, we're all sort of having fun. But also, because this is a good act break, and paired with the Barnsworth, it's, it throws the other one into stark relief where you're like, oh, okay, I saw what you did earlier. I get that you know what you're doing. Mm-hmm. So we return to Artie explaining the transmutational delivery device, um, which not surprisingly was being devised for the military. And he explains that it worked too well and actually blew up in Project Gemini. And the reason it worked too well was because through some kind of fluke in science, it made the images like actually physical and actually dangerous. We now know that this is what's happening um, in the town. And I don't know if we actually even addressed this, by the way. I mean, I know we said this is the Farnsworth Isle, but the bespectacled man we saw in the beginning of the episode, the leader of Project Gemini, that's P.T. Farnsworth. That's Philo T. Farnsworth. Oh my gosh. So I missed this amazing note. It was way back when we were discussing Raymond St. James. Um, Yeah, we saw the Project Gemini folder and Artie going through it to reveal, um, A, the actual man, Philo Farnsworth, in the spectacles, B, Buck Mendel, the African-American warehouse agent, and C, shout out to Hamish slash the, the set deck team, this file is amazingly accurate to the printing technologies of the time. So if you look at the text, I can't believe I gave you this because I used to work in an archive of fanzines um, from, you know, the 40s, 50s. And then we had way more stuff from the 60s and 70s because um, of kind of explosion of culture. But this is a mimeograph and it's a very specific type of printing device that made printing um, much cheaper and easier to do. And when you look at it's like a very I can't describe it besides that I've just seen hundreds of them in real life, but it's a very particular font and a very particular ink. 
and it only existed for like a very brief window of time. So the fact that like the set deck team made this accurate media file for like a one second glance over describing Philo T. Farnsworth in the 40s, like I love it and I I cannot say it enough. If we do nothing else and accomplish nothing else with this podcast, I just want every single person who listens to know and appreciate how thoughtful every single aspect of this production is. It's incredible. Like, like we've said, people come to the show for different things and they're all valid, but like every element was thought out to the ends of perfection. Like they worked so hard to make this historical and thoughtful and representational and like beautiful you know yeah and like that is why everyone we've spoken to who's worked on it says we could have gone another five years that's why jack kenny teared up when he was talking about how much he loved the show everything in the show is made with so much love Mm. and i think just let's we haven't really acknowledged that like on its own as a statement and i just want to take a moment to appreciate that they used all of that love to bring this show down. They did. And like when you are blessed with being handed this bowl of love, it's like a bowl of warm soup that your grandma made. It's like the love in this object that you have been handed, like you are honored to receive it. So I guarantee they didn't think a single person would notice how hard they worked on that. Oh, we noticed. It was so good. We noticed. This is, leads us to Artie breaking into the post office and bringing to reality the fact that indeed the box was sitting on the loading dock for 70 years. Um, (laughs) Artie, as he's doing this, well, there's a great scene where Claudia wants to break in because it's been so long, Um, but they make uh, Artie do it. They go in and they're discussing. Um, Artie says there is a pattern to the random events They just haven't figured it out yet. And so they're going looking through the closed abandoned post office. And in fact, we see an old timey box on a bottom shelf. Um, You know, they look at it and it only had the town kind of address. So it didn't get all the way to the warehouse. And it just sat in the post office. And no one thought twice about it until someone tore it open. Uh, Cut to Brenda, I believe. Yes. And in her house, she is wearing a Snuggie, which I loved um, because that's so of the time. Oh, yeah. Um, And she's just enjoying the Raymond St. James movie marathon, but she is using the 3D projector (laughs) hooked to her TV. She makes a she gets up to make popcorn and is surprised to see the gang standing in her place with Pete telling her to hit the brakes slick, which is a good callback to what she said to him earlier when he tried to go into the post office. Oh, I didn't catch that. That's perfect. Um, So she was making popcorn just like she said she would be. But before we get the culmination of that, we return to Mrs. Frederick and Valda and Taka uh, Valda identifies that McPherson is still there in Lena's mind, but what Taka clarifies for us is that he's not actually there, and this is her expertise coming in where she says he's deep in her subconscious, and Taka explains that if they don't remove McPherson, Lena could go mad, 
And what I love about this, and I can't believe I didn't make this connection because you did it so well, Jill. Like Taka has this ability, goes undescribed. We don't know what it is, but it is like Lena's um, kind of empathetic or insightful capacity to look into people's minds and feelings. And what I really noticed is that in this scene, Lena starts repeating McPherson's dying words. And he is describing um, when he was dead and brought back to life through the Phoenix, like it was empty and dark and there was nothing. When um, we hear McPherson's dying words, like we realize that it's not just like having an invasive consciousness in your own consciousness, but having a deep, dark, sad, lonely consciousness. Like think of Lena and how bright she is and how spirited she is. And she's living with this really incompatible consciousness inside of her own consciousness. I agree completely. And I also want to tie this back into something I said when Lena was first dealing with all this, which is this is a great allegory for PTSD. And what I wish actually existed, which was some kind of tool to go deep into your subconscious and just remove the trauma, um, because it doesn't really reflect on you if you have PTSD. It's not about you or what kind of person you are. Lena is still a bright person. She's just carrying this thing with her. And while in real life, there is no real cure that can reach into your subconscious and just remove the pain and the trauma, this is a good allegory in that the best you can do is have people who love you around you willing to go to the dark places with you and help you get out of them. That's so beautiful. And it's mental health is is the thing you have and your chemistry is what it is and your traumas are what they are and you can't change them but you can carry them better and you can have people help you. And it's not about you. It's not about what kind of person you are. And it doesn't mean that you're not a bright light. And that's huge with Lena's experience because everyone doubted her when this was not her fault and this was not her. And then the continued results of this are not her. And she still is a bright light and amazing person to everyone on the show. Yes, we love you all. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Is like, I know so many of our <laughs> listeners relate to us and like, we feel you and we're here for you. Um, so <laughs> to lighten the mood, my next note is that Mrs. Frederick activates her brain powers. <laughs> Whatever warehousey goodness she is capable of, um, she goes towards um, the Amber and towards Lena's conscious and kind of enters in. We know then that Mrs. Frederick is doing something sort of magical and Lena falls unconscious because we learned in the previous episode that the pearl can only release itself if the host, so to speak, is unconscious. So uh, we're scared and nervous that it's like that time Mrs. Frederick choked uh, Lena. And we know it was good that this happened because Lena comes to almost immediately and like she seems to have had a burden lifted from her. Lena asks if she's all right and Mrs. Frederick says I believe so and the the look of calm on Lena's face and like relief really struck me because I think um what's her name Janelle Williams um she's a very skilled 
actress in her small, minute movements, and she doesn't have as many scenes and as much screen time, but it's all really present and valuable when she's on screen. So totally agreed. And also, as always, another shout out to my beloved CCH Powder, who communicated so much, like... Her task, her direction was clearly, like, somehow communicate that you are going into another person's (laughs) subconscious. And she was like, ah, yes, I can accomplish this by closing my eyes and slightly tensing my hands. And she does! Yes! She's so good! I'm sorry, I just had to shout it out because it's like, I got so much from two very small movements that she did. Yes, well, and that's the thing, we know exactly what's happening, and I'm like, oh yeah, she's using her brain powers and she's removing the threat. Like, what? How do we know that? We just do! So, we return to dear sweet Brenda. She actually, she continues making her popcorn. She's typing into the microwave And she's like, hey, you know, someday when your government pension, you know, fails you, you'll steal from your workplace, too, Um, which is so funny. And also goes back to the IRS cover. Um, But Artie and Claudia are examining the device and they realize that it's being sort of powered by an external source because it's not plugged into anything. Um, interestingly, Pete, like, sits down in Brenda's spot and is, like, ready to watch the movie while other people are investigating the situation. I loved that so much (laughs) because Pete has a skill that I wish I had, which is the ability to say, I have nothing to contribute to this. (laughs) I will wait until I am of use again, and until then, I'm going to have a great time. Whereas my response to situations like that is, oh no, I have nothing to contribute to this. What have I done wrong to be not of use? Yeah. I just love Pete so much. Yes, and so as uh, Claudia and Artie investigate, they're kind of working in sync to figure out the deal, and... I'm sorry that the the sort of technological explanation went by too quickly for me, but the signal is traveling on microwave signals. Like the the microwave is involved in um, allowing this to happen, and we also kind of like get. Uh, this is my conclusion. The the suggestion that like. Every time Brenda went to microwave her popcorn, she was transmitting the signal because it correlates with, like, helping the signal to travel throughout the town. Um, So this really cracked me up because what we learn is that even if they unplug the TV or, sorry, the projector, the the signal is still going to be able to travel around and... Micah kind of suggests that they unplug or destroy it. No one else has an immediate alternative, but they're like, no, that won't work. Specifically, Pete realizes that that won't solve the problem because she's not the only one in town with the microwave. And as long as it's projecting any microwave in town of anyone watching a classic movie marathon at a time when the government has been shut down, essentially, which is going to be most people... So returning to the scene, um, Claudia and Artie conclude that the only way to really stop the movie from projecting 
is to interrupt the regularly scheduled program with something benign. They are rushing to a sort of uninhabited area where they can somehow bring together the projector and the camera and at least try to focus where the image is coming from. That was my impression, but it was all very uh, techno-babbly. We kind of gather that Artie has taken the projector from Brenda's home and, like, they're getting it out of there, but they're also, like you said, if their plan is to interrupt the signal, they have to reunite the two artifact halves together to, like, project something else. They kind of drop the projector in a sort of town uh, block, and then the announcer, like Jillian mentioned, reveals that they're cutting to a commercial break, and Micah's so thrilled, we have three extra minutes, thank goodness, like Dr. Doomsday is not about to give his monologue yet, and Pete says, unless someone fast forwards the commercials, Micah says, like, don't even joke about that. It's excellent, and we go back to the show where Claudia is speeding away um, as Todd finally found her special parts. So she rushes off in her Camino uh, while he comes around the corner, and like a little goofy nerd that he is, he starts, like, chasing her car, which he will never catch. (laughs) And... Luckily, she's not going far, so we're going to see that come back later. Meanwhile, Pete and Micah are watching the movie in the town square. And you can talk all about the plot points of this scene, but I have one note at the beginning and one note I want to hit at the end. We'll get there at the end. But at some point, there's like a funny little robot in the corner, and Pete mentions that he went as that robot one year for Halloween, and that made me so happy because it it absolutely looks like the kind of costume that your mom could have whipped up for you out of enough cardboard, duct tape, and aluminum foil. It's just so funny. It's exactly that, and uh, they see the robot, and the robot comes towards them, so Pete and Micah draw their guns on it, and Pete's like, don't worry, it kills by crushing um, but then it, like, sucks their their guns away. Yeah, And he's like, oh, I forgot about the magnets or whatever. <laughs> and that just cracks me up because also, like, I don't think, I can't think, and I do know the history of science fiction film much better than just general film. I can't think of a robot with magnet arms in my repertoire, but it just feels like we get the exact genre of movie that this is. Like, this is that sci-fi movie from that time and it it makes us kind of laugh and recognize what they're pointing to um and then Artie appears in this like why does the robot have your guns and that's just like (laughs) I want to take that quote out of context like we should uh, like it's so funny yes so yeah that's super great and oh I know you're gonna be the one who wants to talk about what happens next yeah so uh Meanwhile, Claudia is in the back of the Camino, um, kind of like whirling the the um, camera around, prepared to film something benign. Um, but when she tries, she opens up the projector and sees that it's fried. Um, the camera, sorry, the camera is no longer functional. 
And just then, Todd appears, apparently having seen Claudia's car drive not a too long distance. Um, and he has the box of parts that Claudia ordered. So right as the team are bringing their Farnsworths and trying to help Claudia like finagle something that can fuel the machine, and she's like, the, like we said before, she knows. She's like, the Farnsworths don't have enough power to do this. It's never going to work. Look, Todd's here with a ton of parts custom designed to work with a Farnsworth because that's what she was doing. Uh, she rushes up to him and she kisses him on the mouth and calls him a wonder twin. And like <laughs> his dorky response, like he's like, wow, yeah, like. It's so <laughs> perfect, so we'll give him an actor's spotlight next time we see him, because he's really delightful. And so Claudia rushes uh, back to the camera, and she goes to make changes, which we know she is very qualified at and good at, but the signature has changed. Farnsworth changed the, the directions, and everything is reversed, and she's like, God, like, I would need the blueprints. And Micah goes... Oh, I have them? Which I have to interrupt to say, my note here was that reminds me of you. Because I actually have a very specific memory of, we were in the same class, not our nutrition class, when we both went to mythology? Mythology. And I was trying to find a specific thing, and I was like, okay, I remember. And you just went, hang on a second. And you closed your eyes, and then you opened them and like looked up, and you were like, no, I don't see it there. And I was like, I don't see it there either because that's your ceiling. And you're like, oh, yes, yeah, on the bottom of page 63. I think it's the third sentence down. And I went, what did you do with your brain? How did you do that? And you were like, oh, yeah, I can, like, see it in my brain. I was like, okay, I have a genius for a best friend. <laughs> it is a superpower. It's also, uh, as described, possibly the reason I have an anxiety disorder. But this is perfect because Micah goes... Like, I have them. And she's like, well, I have them in my brain. Todd. Todd says, oh, photographic memory? Me too. And Micah goes, who is this guy? Which, like, she's kept her cool all day <laughs> for Pete. But now she's just lost it on poor Todd. But also, like, as that person, like, like oh, another weirdly minded individual. Like, hey, me too. <laughs> and, like... Like, like he does not know what's going on, but I love that fact. We know that fact about Micah, and it, like, is an element to her, and it is, like, really well-developed through her character. But also, like, Todd, like, oh, I don't want to get in trouble, because, like, we do welcome all ships on this show. We are not, like, an official endorsement of anyone, but I really like Todd, and I like him for Claudia. And, like, yeah, I think that if if he's this nerdy photographic memory hardware store boy, like, I like him. I think he's good. And we'll see more episodes with him later. Um, so yeah, uh, Micah rushes to Claudia's aid. And it's amazing. She does that exact thing where you're like closing your eyes and like, oh, I see it. It's in the upper left corner, whatever, whatever. And as a team, once again, Two women work together to solve the problem while a bunch of dudes stand by knowing that they've got this. Um, and finally, Pete does help Micah. Pete does help, and he helps in a sort of dude way where the last thing they need is a fusible link. They kind of shout out the car battery. 
and he rushes to it and he finds the piece they need in record time and brings it to uh he brings it to Micah and Claudia and it's perfect because this is why I felt like even though Pete does assist like I felt like the dudes are sort of bystanders because Todd goes what's happening and Pete Pete looks at him dead serious and goes oh we just connected a blue wire and like I love that and as this is happening the whole scene from the movie is still playing (laughs) out in like the town square and this was my note where Raymond St. James um ends his monologue with I am become death which for western audiences refers to the Robert J. Oppenheimer quote I am become death destroyer of worlds in reference to his regret for the destruction caused by his role in developing the atom bomb Um, and this is a lot of things first of all I started with Robert J. Oppenheimer because it's more familiar to western audiences and because it does tie in very nicely with that post-world war ii atomic age red scare fear um but too many westerners incorrectly attribute this quote to robert j oppenheimer when it actually originates from the bhagavad gita which is a sacred text which translates to the Song of God. It's often shortened to being called the Gita. It's a 700-verse Sanskrit scripture that's part of the Hindu religion. So I think it's really important that we shed light onto the original source, which is a non-Western, non-Judeo-Christian religious text that we can't claim belongs to some dude from the 1950s. That's amazing. And honestly, I've heard the Oppenheimer quote and never that it was from a Hindu holy text. So I am so glad to know that. So just in time, they've connected the blue wire. Claudia (laughs) shoots the camera at Artie's head and he's realizing that they have saved the day and Artie is like laughing sort of awkwardly as the sun is shining and the birds are singing and someone asks like did that just go out to all of the Raymond St. James fan club and a disembodied (laughs) head is just floating on the screen and I think it's so funny but I just loved how much this was satire of and an homage to classic cinema I just loved it so much so Back at the warehouse, we're kind of winding down. Everything's coming to a close. Claudia, seeming to have not learned a single thing, is looking at the Tesla and being like, oh, maybe I can do something. But Lena very kindly points out that that's probably not a good idea. And Claudia sort of reluctantly agrees. Meanwhile, Micah's in the corner reading a book. And I think it's perfectly in character for her. Oh yeah, of course. I just wish Lena had shared a little more about her day. I wish we knew more about Lena in general because she had such a tremendous experience and she knows all about what they all did all day. Yeah. She's asking questions about it and no one's asking about her. And I just, I think this is something that happens to black female characters in television especially ones that are adjacent to but not necessarily part of the main group. And so, again, 
we love this show. We appreciate how much love has been put into this show. But, you know, I just think this is something we should watch out for in all cinema because it's it's a thing that happens pretty frequently. Yeah, and I'm interested because I kind of noted, like, Micah's next line is so Claudia. Like, Todd's cute. And the thing I like about this is that when we talk about the Bechdel test, it's like the issue with women on screen is that they're primary motivation was historically like a pursuit of a heterosexual relationship and it's extremely aggravating to never give them concern or character related to anything outside of that what i do think is that women regardless of orientation do talk about their relationships and they do that with each other and every gender does that in their own way and so it's like It doesn't bother me that especially Micah and Claudia being as close as this episode has reminded us, like Micah is sort of being older sisterly and kind of like encouraging to Claudia. And so I like it. It it doesn't offend me at all. But I wonder if we could really rectify that whole, not just Bechdel test, but test for characters and women of color with what if we just supplemented this scene with two more exchanges with Lena? Um, Because Lena is carrying this burden with the help of Mrs. Frederick, but without the other members of the team seeming to be really aware. And I get the impetus from the writing standpoint. Don't get me wrong. Asking about Claudia and her potential romance moves the story forward. Yeah. Talking about Lena and her emotional recovery doesn't because it inherently goes back to the past. But it just made it very noticeably awkward for me that Lena was just sitting in the corner not participating. I think that's a really good note. Yeah. So this scene moves by really quickly because Pete busts in with the biggest bowl of popcorn (laughs) and not only the popcorn, but also a Raymond St. James movie. I love him. And they're like, (laughs) you have got to be kidding. Like, we spent all day being attacked by Raymond St. James movies. Like, are we really going to go watch one? And he's like, hey, I have a big screen, which is a reminder of Micah's kind gesture to him last time. And he's like, all right, suit yourself. And when he starts heading upstairs to his room, he tells them, like, you know, the movie's in my room. Artie goes for the popcorn because he's always interested in some snacks. (laughs) And then the uh, other characters realize, like, oh, if we want that popcorn, we've got to go watch this movie with Pete. And, like, it returns us to our found family. And that's how a lot of season two episodes end. Yay! Okay, that makes me so happy. Everyone's heading all up. And just then, when you think everything's all good... Mrs. Frederick appears when they're all gone and she tears away a page that has a mysterious doodle that Lena was drawing. I don't know what it is. It looked sort of like headphones. That's what it looked like to to me. I don't know. But um, we hear Valda's voice saying he may have left something behind in the echo. So, that's our episode! Yes! That's all we have for this week, agents. We'll see you next time.